How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. I knew I wanted to include my my father and my grandma a lot in the book. So once I started interviewing them, I, I started to realize that like the real delight that came out in me, or really the real grief that came out in me, was always in response to the particular. It's hard to draw out really seemingly mundane stories, but I think that is where the bond between the three of our stories really is strengthened is in these kind of very small fragments of memory. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Today we're speaking with Cole Arthur Riley. She's the creator of Black Liturgies, a space for Black spiritual words of liberation, lament, rage, and rest, and a project of the Center for Dignity and Contemplation, where she serves as executive curator. Ms. Riley was born and for the most part raised in Pittsburgh, studied writing at the University of Pittsburgh, and today we are talking about her recent book, This Here Flesh, Spirituality, Liberation, and the Stories That Make Us. Cole Arthur Riley, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you for having me. I want to start our conversation in a bit of an odd place. You talk about this in your book, This Here Flesh. You're sitting, it's your freshman year of college, and you're sitting in a McDonald's across the table from another person. You're both drinking really bad coffee. I recall you writing that the coffee tasted like ashes. But you're having a conversation, and it takes a bit of a strange turn. And I wonder if you would take me and my listeners, back to that moment, who you were speaking to and what was being said that kind of made you pull back inside a little bit? Yes. So this was a McDonald's on Forbes Avenue in Pittsburgh. It's still there. And I was in college. I was sitting across from my first Bible study leader ever. I'd never studied the Bible meaningfully uh, before college. And I had found myself as a black woman. I had found myself in a 
very white evangelical Christian space and was looking for some amount of belonging in that and was maybe even finding some amount of belonging in that, but didn't quite resonate with a lot of the language and a lot of doctrines or creeds about God. So I'm sitting across from this woman and, well, she's a senior, so um, sitting across from her and she's trying to give me the gospel message. She's saying, Jesus is in your heart. You need to have Jesus in your heart uh, to be saved. And was using this pretty common you know, it's it's not uncommon, this pretty common fr- framework for approaching the, d- the divine as a, a savior, a rescuer from some kind of doomed fate. And the funny thing is, this girl, she, she really did speak like a Hallmark card. It, it was so clear that it wasn't necessarily her. It was almost like a possession or something. It, it, it wasn't her. Something shifted in her as soon as we would start talking about God and using all this kind of very cliche language. And Without the understanding that as an outsider, as a person new to a Christian tradition, it all just sounds absurd. Like, why would I want God in my heart? And I think I say in the book, I didn't have the courage to tell her I like my heart just fine. And she says, you know, for eternal life, God looks to the heart. And there's something that of an assumption even in that to assume that I would want to live forever. And I, I, for one, don't. <laughs> so, yeah, the whole scene was a bit surreal and really complicated internally, but I couldn't express it out loud at the moment. Well, thank you for taking a moment and giving us that orientation because you've placed now on the table of the conversation several things that we can begin to dive into and unpack. First of all, the way that you described the kind of script that this person was running from, you, you describe it as kind of a possession. And it's interesting to me because even though we're talking about spiritual things, this is a book about embodiment and what it means to have a body and what it means to have a particular type of body. And I, I wonder if you'd be willing to speak a little bit about that. So when we're talking about This Here Flesh, the title of your book, Help us and help my listeners to begin to understand how you were thinking about that as you began to arrange these stories into the pattern that you weave for us as readers. Mm -hmm. Yes, I knew I wanted to write a book about spiritual liberation. And I was thinking, you know, what are the ways I, what what are the things I've been taught or, or trained in that were more about captivity than liberation. And the most obvious thing for me, at least, was concepts of a a disembodied spirituality, the the ideas of, you see this a lot in Christian spiritualities, specifically this idea of kind of escaping the body and making it to a someday heaven, which is usually thought of as disembodied. And I think Christian rhetoric has a lot of calls to have your body suffer. There's this kind of strange thing that happens where when you're taught about the suffering of Christ, it's like Christ suffered. So how are you going to suffer? And usually that call is somewhat bodily as if it's not irrelevant, but it's like this necessary cost that your body is almost expendable. So I was trying to, it, it was frankly pretty easy for me because I'd been formed in other spiritualities. I'd been formed in the spirituality of my household, which was very sensory and embodied. And I was being formed 
in college, especially by the spirituality that I found in Black literature, which is so embodied, so earthy, so mysterious and imprecise. And the title of the book, This Here Flesh, actually comes from a Toni Morrison novel, Beloved, and and this sermon that the matriarch gives in the clearing where she talks about loving the body in this here place. You know, we flesh that weeps, laughs, flesh that dances on bare feet and grass, love it. And she gives this kind of beautiful sermon or monologue, whatever you want to call it, in the clearing that is really subversive. And and, and, and Morrison writes that this matriarch, Baby Suggs, she writes, um, didn't tell them to go and sin no more. You know, this kind of traditional white evangelical gospel telling the gospel, go sin no more, don't sin. Her gospel, so to speak, was about the flesh, was about embodiment, being in your body, weeping, laughing, dancing, and ultimately loving it. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Cole Arthur Riley. She's the creator of Black Liturgies, which is a space for Black spiritual words of liberation, lament, rage, and rest, and is a project of the Center for Dignity and Contemplation, where she serves as executive curator. Today, we're talking about her recent book, This Here Flesh, Spirituality, Liberation, and the Stories That Make Us. I want to return to something that you said just a moment ago. You said that Black literature is often imprecise. And I really want to hear more about that word, because when I heard you say it, and everything that followed in your answer after you said it, and everything that I read in your book, This Here Flesh, is written with such precision. There's a time, there's a place, there's a peculiar particularity about the way that these stories get told. And they're not universal stories. They are stories of a people, of persons. And so even though you're saying that it's imprecise, I, I found incredible precision in the book and also in the, the Black literature that you quote throughout the book. So I'd, I'd love to hear about that tension a little bit between your claim of imprecision and the precision that I found throughout your work. Yes, Thank you. And that's really sharp to point out. Yeah, I think that there's, when I say imprecision in Black literature, there's something creedally imprecise when you think about a creed encapsulating your belief system. There's something imprecise about the art, the, maybe the education of a belief, the, the pedagogy that's happening. There's something imprecise. You're not clearly told exactly what to believe. And you're not supposed to immediately understand. It's more interested in conveying with precision the, the human spirit, the human spiritual experience. The lack of precision is in the answers. The questions that I think Black literature and and good spirituality asks should be precise, but the answers to allow them to expand and be completely complicated, <laughs> nuanced, and mysterious. I find that a lot in Black literature, that, that mystery in terms of the answer. I like that so much, and thank you for clarifying this creedal imprecision. In other words, it's if I'm hearing you correctly, it's not about getting the right answer in terms of doctrine. Is it correct to say it's more about asking the right question that comes out of a situation or out of a particular embodiment or a particular suffering? Is that the better way to think about this, or would you say it in a different way? 
No, I think you've just said it beautifully. I wish, I mean, I'm going to listen to this and write that down <laughs> afterwards. But that, yeah, I think that's that's a beautiful way to put it. Exactly. So I think that sometimes, and, and you speak about this particularly towards the, the conclusion of your book, This Here Flesh, I think that for people who are raised in a Christianity where the God and the Jesus look like me, and for those that are, haven't seen my picture in a while, I'm a white presenting man in all of the ways that might have kind of freight and ideology, I think that for many who are reared in this kind of discourse, I think that there's a way of wielding creedal imprecision, the impreciseness of doctrine, as a way of saying almost like a test or almost like a way of excluding people. And so you are writing from the other side of that, from the space of the excluded and from the space of those who haven't shared the kind of colonial dominant power. And so as we're moving towards our first break, I wonder if you can help to shape what the reader will encounter when they come to this. What are they going to be taking away from your work this year, Flesh, to get to that kind of liberation that you've been talking about throughout our conversation? Yeah. If not creed, then what? You know, if it's not creed, then what? And I think for me, that answer was story. If And so I think that a, the reader will hopefully end the book feeling near to their own story, you know, more curious about the stories that have formed them and formed their ideas and, and beliefs. But also I do, I want them to, if you're going to encounter a question of the spiritual, I hope they're finding this pattern of, instead of meeting it with an answer all of the, the time, what does it look like to to put a face to that question, to put a body to that question and a, a truly lived experience, to let that accompany questions of the spiritual as opposed to, you know, an educational output, if that makes sense. So I would hope that readers are taking away a love of story, a, a new imagination for how story can function in our interior worlds and in our spiritual formation. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Cole Arthur Riley. She's the creator of Black Liturgies, a space for Black spiritual words of liberation, lament, rage, and rest. It's a project of the Center for Dignity and Contemplation, where she serves as executive curator. Born and for the most part raised in Pittsburgh, Riley studied writing at the University of Pittsburgh. Today we're talking about her recent book, This Here Flesh, Spirituality, Liberation, and the Stories That Make Us. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. 
Welcome back to Things Not Seen. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of conversations and interviews, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Cole Arthur Riley. She's the creator of Black Liturgies, a space for black spiritual words of liberation, lament, rage, and rest. And it's a project of the Center for Dignity and Contemplation, where she serves as executive curator. Today, we're talking about her recent book, This Here Flesh, Spirituality, Liberation, and the Stories That Make Us. Before the break, we were talking about the importance of story and learning to live into our own stories. And one of the things that just grabbed me throughout reading your book, This Here Flesh, is how masterfully it's constructed. And I'm going to give the listeners a couple of examples of that. So there are points where you weave together your family history and its multi-generational going back to your grandparents and even in some cases your great-grandparents, or at least the people that raised your grandparents. And you also are weaving together your own kind of story in your body and some health concerns. And there are points where you will give a little bit of information about a diagnosis or a procedure that's being done on some part of your body as you're trying to track down some answers about illnesses, or you talk about something that happened with your grandmother. And then I'll find myself going, wait, I'm at the end of the chapter and I want to know more about what's going on with Miss Riley's eyes, or I want to know more about what happened to the grandmother at 15. And then a couple chapters later, you pick up that same thread and you answer the questions that I was burning with. I just found that to be such masterful storytelling. And I, I wanted to ask you about the construction of the book, how you and those that you worked with at your publisher thought about how these stories would be told and how they would be weaved together, almost layering them like a braid or those moments where something will rise up for the reader and fall into the background and rise up again. Can you tell me and my listeners about what you thought about as you were constructing this book? Mm, yes, and thank you. I am really interested in storytelling that is concerned with particularity or stories that are could almost be seen as minor, minor in the most beautiful of terms. I was really interested in, I, I'd been interviewing people in my family for a handful of years when I started to write this book. I'd been interviewing them just as a personal project, a family project. And by the time I went to write the, the book, they were just really alive in me. And I knew I wanted to include my, my father and my grandma a lot in the book. So once I started interviewing them, I, I started to realize that like the real delight that came out in me or really the real grief that came out in me was always in response to the particular. It's hard to draw out really seemingly mundane stories, but I think that is where the bond between the three of our stories really is strengthened is in these kind of very kind of small fragments, almost kind of fragments of, of memory. And I could have just tried to braid together our overarching stories, you know, the kind of like grand events of our lives. And I think that actually would have made for a really brittle bond, if that makes sense. And there was something about tying together these really mundane fragments that was just as special to me. And I think it made the three of us, made each of us seem more human and more complicated when you're communicating the fragments, I feel like the humanity shines through because things don't always resolve, right? You experience them or you experience life where 
I didn't receive answers immediately. So I'm not going to give them, I'm not going to give the reader an, an immediate answer to what is happening with my eyes. And I think hopefully that will draw the the reader in. Hopefully that draws the reader in and doesn't alienate them if you do it right. But I, I want to give people kind of an appetite for stories that don't resolve <laughs> or don't resolve immediately. But together with the, the braiding, that, that language I use, the braiding together of the fragments, that creates the image of the person as opposed to very clear, grand narrative, if that makes sense. It does. And one of the things as a reader that I experienced was I found myself having anticipatory tensions. I found myself frustrated. I wanted to know more. And then when I was given more information a chapter or two later, I found myself relaxing and say, oh, now I know more. And that it. And, and so I really do think that exactly as you said, this kind of technique of storytelling, it's an art and it's clear that you have studied it and given it a lot of thought because it was really effective for me as a reader. But it also strikes me that you're doing that same thing on the other side of the page. It seems to me as a reader that you are paying attention to these rhythms of feeling in your own experience and in the experience of those around you. You talked about your your father as a character in this story, your grandmother as a character in this story. You're attuned to their ebbs and flows of emotion in an empathetic way as well. And I wonder, what is it like to be on that side of the page, feeling these feelings and and then trying to document them in a way that will also work for the reader? Because there's a real technique to that, I think. Yeah, it- it, it was hard. It is hard. These are my elders and I'm writing about people I, I, I love so much. My, my grandma actually, she passed away during the copy editing phase of the publication process. And there was just such a desire in me to make sure I honored them. And people have asked me who the audience is for this book. I, it was so hard for me to answer. And I think I, I realized recently it's because my audience was then. It, it was my father. It was my grandma. And I was, it almost had to be because of the stories they were trusting me with. I wanted to make sure that they felt dignified and that my, the pages were worthy to like hold these family stories, these family secrets often. But it's really difficult because I know them with all of their nuance and their quirks and their slyness. And I know the way that their hands move when they're lying. And I know these things. And it, it's so difficult to try to care for them in the storytelling and care for the reader, an imagined reader. When I, I have real people who I speak to every day on the phone who I feel this responsibility to, and then to have an imagination for this maybe audience, it was really difficult. But I think almost in caring for my grandma and my father in a way that that helped I hope the reader feel cared for, even if they weren't always in the front of my mind while I was writing. I think the care kind of is transferable almost. Before we go any further, you mentioned the loss of your grandmother, and I just want to take a moment and say I'm very sorry for that loss and to express my deepest sympathies to you and your family. Thank you. I appreciate it. 
Let me take a moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Cole Arthur Riley. She is the creator of Black Liturgies, a space for Black spiritual words of liberation, lament, rage, and rest. It's a project of the Center for Dignity and Contemplation, where she serves as executive curator. Today, we're talking about her recent book, This Here Flesh, Spirituality, Liberation, and the Stories That Make Us. I was struck as you were giving that answer about caring for these stories that had been entrusted to you by your father and your grandmother. And as I was listening to you, something came to mind, a quotation from Anne Lamott in her book about writing called Bird by Bird. And she talks about a commitment, not necessarily to the people that she's telling the stories of, but rather to the truth of her experience. And I'm, I'm going to paraphrase what she says, but if they wanted you to write about them better, they should have treated you better. And I heard almost the the complete opposite of that in what you were saying. If I heard you correctly, and it, please do correct my paraphrase if I've gotten it wrong, that you were saying, no, these are people who sheltered me, who cared for me the best that they could, who entrusted me with their stories. And I want to make sure that what I write is worthy of them and their experience and my experience. So it's almost as if the truth is not adversarial, as Lamott says, but rather you're seeing the truth as a kind of collective effort, a community effort that takes immense trust. Now, these are my words, not yours, but as I say that, am I on to something or would you say it in a different way? I mean, I think you are on to something that, that probably speaks a bit to my personality, but also to maybe if I didn't love my father and my grandma the way that I do, or maybe if they had been crueler to me, maybe I would feel less of this fidelity to, to them and, and less of this kind of protective nature over them. Because I do, I feel very protective over both of their stories. But I think what Lamont is saying is so good. And, and I think as I develop as a writer, as I develop my voice, and all I want to do is be able to become more honest. I think I've done that some in this here flesh, for example, with the, the woman and the man who raised my grandmother. I did not spare them. You know, I had thought about sparing them. I had thought about trying to write some additional compassion into their actions or try. I, I was almost desperate for it. How can I get people to feel somewhat compassionate so that they can't be reduced? But in the end, I thought that's not really my responsibility. My responsibility, I think, is to my grandma's story. So I'm going to tell it how she would tell it. So in that way, I think I would agree with Anne Lamont. If those, if the woman and the man who were not her mother and not her father didn't want to be remembered this way, they should have treated her better. I mean, there's a bit of relief in that that I find beautiful. Well, and in your answer, I think that you lift up something that is crouching in the background of what Lamott says, but her own circumstances maybe make her blind to it. The, we can definitely be cynical about the people that have been in our lives, but also when those in our lives have treated us with tenderness or with care, we can also be joyful about that and we can rejoice and we can honor those things that have been given to us. And so I really like the, the way that you sort of thought your way through my answer. But that drives me now to something that you said a few moments ago. You talked about a, a kind of tension between delight and grief. And that reminded me of something that you said, I, I believe is around the midpoint of your book, This Here Flesh. And you began by saying, listen, joy is different from happiness and sadness is distinct from depression. And 
when we're talking about these kinds of feelings, oftentimes our culture flattens them down so that grief and sadness and depression are all in the same hue and delight and joy and happiness. I really learned from that moment when you blew them out and we're like, no, we need to think about these things particularly and treat them differently in our responses to them with our bodies. But I'd love it if you tell my audience a little bit about those distinctions that you began to see as you thought about these various emotions. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. I was always a person who would like internally scoff at joy and even things like, even something like love, it, it, it felt so, it all felt so sentimental and I think I was threatened by it, if I'm honest. I've lived with depression for a long time, over a decade. And I experienced people talking about things like joy and, and delight as a threat because for me, they were some of my earliest alienators. These moments where I felt like I couldn't belong to my family or to friends or because I was so sad and depressed. As I'm getting older, I'm trying my best to complicate my emotional experience, like add some depth and, and to find beauty and the range of emotions and to really distinguish when something becomes a danger, um, when something becomes a danger and when something has the capacity for beauty. And I think of sadness and anger and, and joy have the, the there's both in there you know there can be a danger in sadness that danger is called despair you know when you feel like you don't have agency within your sadness or that you're being held there and obviously there's certainly a danger and anger but what does it mean to not let the danger completely alienate us from these emotional experiences which is what i did for so long trying to just be neutral. <laughs> and I think emotional neutrality, it's just, it's not the gift that people think it is because it's probably closer to numbness than true neutrality. But to be human and to think about ourselves and, and, and give ourselves over to joy and delight and, and, and pleasure even at times to allow us to, to allow ourselves to, to feel that in our body and, and not just cognitively can say the same thing about love to allow love to be more than just like a mental practice i think it doesn't it, it just makes life better in my opinion it, it makes us more human i want to come back to something that you said just a moment ago when you used the phrase when something becomes a danger because that made me think about the way that you have framed the relationships in your book this here flesh and here's why I say that, because throughout the book, those things that should be close to us and trustworthy to us, so familial relationships between parent and child, or the relationship between your own desires within your body and your body's ability to make good on those desires with health and with robustness, like there are points in your book where continually something becomes a danger in these things that if we take the Hallmark card view of the world is supposed to be all sweetness and light. And so there really is, there's a tremendous joy and hope that I found in your book. I, I found it to be an incredibly strong book of hopefulness for me as a reader, but also it's so honest in terms of but listen, people can be really awful to one another. And I want to hear a little bit about that tension when the things that become dangers are those things that we should be able to throw ourselves at with trust and an expectation of care. Mm -hmm. Sure. 
Yeah, I mean, I think everyone has experienced it on some level. It's like a betrayal. You're set up to expect one thing and you receive another. And I tried to set that up in in my book in terms of I'm thinking of my relationship with my father, for example, where I try to really ground the book in the beginning in this delight of my father. He's this wonderful, he really is this wonderful person, this wonderful figure. And he is such a personality. He's a charmer. and, And more than anything else, he just was desperate for us to resist the self-hatred that can be a product of the world that the hatred or the kind of diminishing that the world can do to us he wanted us to resist that so he would build us up and then just lavish us with tenderness and care and i wanted the reader to fall in love with him and i hope they did and then and only then was i going to reveal that he was not all hero he wasn't just a hero that he had his own struggles and in ways he has wounded me. And I hope when, you know, readers ex- experience that, they maybe see some of that in their own life. These moments where you you have this trust built, you know, this was unshakable trust and delight in a thing or person, and then the world delivers something else. I feel like that's such a shared kind of transcendent experience of relationships that I wanted to communicate. Well, and I found your presentation of your father, if we talk in terms of story, structure, character arc, I really understand what you're saying about wanting to present him one way at the beginning so that we fall in love with him. Then you present some of the pieces that are maybe not so great in terms of his own story and his own struggle the places where he's really human and he's really, he has lived a life of trauma, like many of the people in your book. But then there's also, towards the end of your book, a point where he is helping to chaperone a dance and he's sitting at a table for a little bit of quiet and you in your sparkly dress run in and you grab his hand and you say, come to the center of the dance floor. I want to show you off to everybody. And so there's a real arc there of beauty of even with the flaws, now that you've shown us the flaws, you still grab his hand hand and you pull him to the center of the dance floor and you show him off. I I, I loved that moment so much. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. That was my sister, but it, it could have just as well been me because we both just, yeah, we really did just adore my father. He was a single father for many years, a father as a teenager. And yeah, we, we've just always adored him. And he, if you ask him what his ha- the happiest moment in his life is, it's so funny. He'll tell that story as if he's never told it before. When, you know, we've all heard it dozens of times, but it's in him. It's really, it's deep, it's deep in him. This moment of being embraced, of being wanted. And this moment where the one he loves is not ashamed of him. That is his, that's, that's where his most joyful memory is situated in this moment of embrace. And yeah, I love that you pointed that out. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Cole Arthur Riley. She's the creator of Black Liturgies, a space for Black spiritual words of liberation, lament, rage, and rest. It's a project of the Center for Dignity and Contemplation, where she serves as executive curator. Today, we're talking about her recent book, This Here Flesh, Spirituality, Liberation, and the Stories That Make Us. We'll be back in a moment. 
Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Cole Arthur Riley. She's the creator of Black Liturgies, a space for black spiritual words of liberation, lament, Rage and Rest. It's a project of the Center for Dignity and Contemplation, where she serves as executive curator. Today, we're talking about her recent book, This Here Flesh, Spirituality, Liberation, and the Stories That Make Us. Coming back to the structure of This Here Flesh, you start out the book with something, and then you come back to it towards the end of the book. And I really liked the way that you did this. And it's the matter of being a contemplative and what it means to be a contemplative who has a body and isn't just sitting apart meditating, but is contemplative in their heartbeat and in their movements and in their breathing. And you start out saying, I'm going to talk about this. And then almost for eight or nine chapters, it, it goes into the background and then it comes forward again. And this is how we do it. We do it by, by loving combined with justice. We do it by telling stories in ways that are powerful. We do it by honoring our bodies and healing and resting. I want to hear more about contemplation. Mm -hmm. Yes, I I do have a, a little bit of the heart of a monastic in me. I think I think I always have maybe been given to I don't know my own interior world. I'm just was a very shy and, and, and quiet child and and adolescent and college student for that matter. And there's something that's always been really comfortable for me in in a spirituality that's contemplative at the same time i know myself and i know it in me and many of us is this kind of risk of disembodiment of of inflating projects of the mind or inflating intellectualism or whatever and i wanted to be sure my spirituality was was more than that yeah that it that it wasn't suppressing my body that it wasn't suppressing the sensory but allowed for for both. And I've reached this place. My, um, I say this in the beginning of, of the book, but my family, we have this kind of family mantra, pay attention. Really, this is my dad's mantra, but <laughs> he's the only one that says it. <laughs> but it said so much and it's so, you know, deep in each of us that it feels like all, it feels like our mantra. And that really speaks to me in terms of contemplation to think about it, not as just this pilgrimage into your interior world. In isolation, but also just this attention, attention to the interior and your interior life, but also attention to the exterior and attention to your neighbor and the justice or injustice in the world or the beauty or decay of the world, but just maintaining some fidelity to that attentiveness around you. I think to me, that's what good contemplation is. And the way I do it is through storytelling, because it's in kind of preserving memories and stories that I think 
for me, that attentiveness becomes easier. Right? I see things or I notice things or I smell or taste things that I might not have been so present to if I didn't know I had a responsibility of remembrance, of caring for what was happening in, in that moment. And so, yeah, I think I, I, I say in the beginning, this is a book of contemplative storytelling and which I completely made up that term. <laughs> um, that's absolutely what I want my spirituality to look like. I want it to look like this attentiveness. And I want the path, at least for me, to be through story. So when you say something, like you said in our last segment, that you want to ensure that the pages are worthy of the stories that you were given by your father or your grandmother, that's part of the key, is making sure that you were present in the moment of the telling and that you captured something that was maybe beyond simply the words that were being said, but to the deeper truth that was going on behind it. Help me understand how attentiveness helps us to make the pages worthy of the telling. Yes, that's such that's so beautiful. And I don't think I would have even been able to articulate it that way immediately. But I completely resonate with what you've just said. And it's the end, I'll say it was just as much about their words as it was how they spoke the words or I, I would some of it I just did with an audio recording. But some of the interviews I did, I was able to video them and really capture the way their mouths move or the smirks and you know, the head scratches or the shoulder shrugs. And you'll notice that in the book, a lot of times I'm not just telling the story for them. I'm allowing them and and their voice. It's like, you watch them tell me sometimes. And it's like, you'll you'll see my grandma's shoulder slump or you'll see my, my father hide his face. And there's almost, I don't know, like the door into the actual story excavation that I think readers have at moments that I think is really beautiful. So what what I think, if the pages are worthy, it's because I've been able to tell the truth. If we go back to that, that animal quote, I've been able to tell the truth about their stories and then also the truth about th- them that they don't even see, that they don't even get to observe in themselves as they're welcoming me into these stories. You mentioned that your grandmother passed during the page-proof process of bringing your book, This Here Flesh, to release. I I wonder if you have shared this with other family members, and what has their response been to the telling of these stories? So it's funny that you ask. Two friends and I were just giggling about this last night. What if someone asks you in an interview, has your family read this book? And no, <laughs> they haven't. And I think that's, it's a really interesting, I mean, my my father, he just can't read it without crying. Same with my sister. And I think because everyone is so in the grief still of losing my grandma, it's really difficult to hear her voice or encounter these stories on the page. But I, I have a cousin, my dearest cousin, she's pretty much a sister to me and lived with us for a number of years and we with her and she has read it. So one of us has read it and it's just been so, I don't know, meaningful. I think it's strengthened the bond that you know, when you hear someone 
write about your family through their eyes or when you hear your grandma's voice and the voice of your cousin, like something really strange and beautiful happens. And I think there's some kind of closeness that's fostered. But even with those who haven't read, I think even just having the artifact, there's been a lot of talk in my family about the lack of history that we've been able to preserve and the lack of artifacts that we've been able to preserve. And we've spoken at length about just how much of a relief it feels like to know that you have something to keep and to pass on and to that, that our children can inherit and maybe be inspired by and want to write their own kind of family storytelling account. So that's been really special. Let me take a moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Cole Arthur Riley. She's the creator of Black Liturgies, a space for Black spiritual words of liberation, lament, rage, and rest. It's a project of the Center for Dignity and Contemplation, where she serves as executive curator. Today, we're talking about her recent book, This Here Flesh, Spirituality, Liberation, and the Stories That Make Us. A moment ago, you were talking about being in the grief of the loss of your grandmother. And I want to frame this in not simply that particular loss, but other losses that you touch on in your book, This Here Flesh. This is a book that deals very particularly with the generational effects of trauma. And as we get towards the end of your book, you're dealing with that kind of more and more explicitly. In fact, you're referencing books like The Body Keeps the Score and other things like that. And as we're talking about an embodied spirituality, a a spirituality that takes seriously the experience of the body, you really invite the reader to think about their own suffering through the lens of the sufferings of your family and also the suffering that you yourself are navigating in terms of your own body being with illness and being compromised in ways that you didn't necessarily expect. So help my listeners to to get a sense of how trauma and generational trauma are sort of factors, specters, hauntings within this book. Hmm. Yes. It's never entirely clear or it's never completely articulated, the, the link between us. But I'm glad that you've sensed that and others have sensed that I'm trying to get at this intergenerational trauma without necessarily pointing it out all the time on the page for the reader. I'm I'm interested in the reader kind of making those connections and encountering a a fragment of a memory of my father and think, oh, that reminds me of this other fragment with his mother. And so I was hoping some of that would happen naturally without me always pointing it out. But yeah, I was surprised as, as a daughter, as a grandmother, just how much connection there is between the three of our stories and between the very specific moments in our stories or some language that we would use to describe things or I mean it was yeah it was really kind of bizarre to to come awake to and I can honestly say I hadn't thought about it much before I mean I thought about the things I'd inherited but not in terms of story more so in terms of coping habits and things like that. But I think, yeah, that we are, we're formed by, we're formed by things that we can know nothing about. And it's just so, it's so wild to think, but we can be formed so deeply by something that happened before we were ever even, you know, a thought in the mind of our fathers. And there's something really troubling about that, but there's also something, I don't know, somewhat comforting in knowing that, you can't just inherit trauma. 
that you inherit the beauty and the habits of persevering and endurance. Um, you inherit those things as well. And that's comforting to know, and, and also to know that you have company, that there's company on the journey throughout history. You've had company on the journey. I'd like to gather together the corners of the answer that you just gave me and the question that I started out with, where we were reminded of that moment in your freshman year of college when you're in the McDonald's and the person sitting across the table from you was basically possessed by these Hallmark card kind of theologies that were basically, if I'm recalling, you you said that it almost treated bodies as if they were expendable on the way towards a kind of someday heaven that was going to be after we die. And and what I really like about what you were just saying about intergenerational trauma is that we talk a lot in Christianity about redemptive suffering, but the way that you just phrased it, those moments of pain and joy that your forebears endured, those sufferings are redeemed in your ability to tell the story well. Those sufferings are redeemed by expanding them into something that is meaningful in a way that that is worthy of those stories. And I really like that idea of we're not talking about some kind of Hallmark card in the sweet by and by, but rather, no, it takes work to redeem these things, and not everyone can redeem them. The person sitting across from you in the McDonald's was not worthy to redeem these stories, but you've helped to make yourself worthy by the care that you've taken. Now, when I say these words, they're my words, and they're not intended to be simply flattering. They're intended to really open up something here and say, this is sacred work that you're doing with these stories, and it's sacred work of healing. But when I say that, does that sound right, or would you say it in a different way? Thank you. I think so. My, my grandma didn't, she wasn't able to hold the book or, or read the book, but something she said along the way was she was a writer, by the way. She was a writer and could only dream of doing something like this. But of course, the time, you know, when she was my age, this was just unfathomable for her. And she she said something along the lines of, of hopes being met in me and her literary hopes even and being met in me. And maybe some people would hear that as a pressure, but I, I heard it as a kind of healing. And witness witness the power of being known or having another eye on your story, I think can be incredibly healing. And, you know, for a woman who was so demeaned and so rendered invisible in, in many ways, in, in many different spaces, to have her stories now read by so many people. I think that there's a certain healing and there's something mysterious being reordered, I think. And the fact that it's her story that gets to take up so much space and that her story is my story taking up space. But I hope and I think that there there is some healing in that. Well, and as you're thinking about these stories now being received by others, what is your hope for the readers? And you, you've you mentioned that you didn't think of the audience as being the general public. You thought of the audience really in some ways being your family. But I wonder, as others who are not directly connected to these stories begin to encounter them, have you been pleased by the reception of the book? And are there still hopes for how these stories are going to shape the impressions of the readers? Yeah, I've been so surprised, pleasantly surprised by how much it's moved people. Yeah, it, it's very surreal. And if someone told me recently that 
like the the trending words and like the Amazon reviews have been like cry, crying, weep, (laughs) which is fine by me, you know, let it out. But it seems like there's a real emotional connection to the stories that I don't, if, if it had just been a book of traditional Christian contemplation without the stories, I don't think you would see the same things, you know, the same responses in terms of emotion. I'm not close to the reviews. I'm terrified by them. So I haven't read any except for the ones that have been sent to me. But I think that what I hope has happened in in some way that people have felt kind of an exhale. They've felt a form for spirituality that allows them to kind of expand or just be curious or to wonder and to not always know. So I hope readers take the stories with them, but only in as much as it liberates them into their own story more and, you know, continues to make them curious and compassionate to toward the, the people that have formed them. And I wonder, now that you're on this side of the project, and if you're uncomfortable answering this, I will certainly withdraw the question, but I wonder if you're willing, what have you learned about your own spirituality? as a result of being on now the other side of this project and writing it? What a good question. I've learned, the biggest thing is I've learned just how afraid I am, um, uh, afraid I am to to tell the truth, <laughs> to tell the truth about what I think or what I don't think or what I believe or what I don't know I believe. I have never been so sure about the role belonging plays or desire for belonging plays and how I and probably others communicate our belief systems. If I, I I wouldn't have said, I mean, I'm an introvert. I consider myself somewhat of a loner and I wouldn't have said that I'm driven by belonging, you know, (laughs) and um, no one that knows me would probably say that, but I've recognized even that in me, you know, alienation is a powerful thing and it can lead us to profess all kinds of things about God that we don't actually think or believe and all kinds of things about the world and the way we should move in the world that we actually don't believe. And so, yeah, I'm learning on the other side of this that I need to continue to just press into press into honesty. Who was it? I mean, Ian Lamott said it one way. June Jordan said, I'm interested in my particular truth as I have seen it. And she was very unapologetic about that. And I want more of that in my writing, just more honesty and almost an unapologetic honesty. Well, Cole Arthur Riley, your book, This Here Flesh, floored me. I read it and I found truth and beauty and depths of my own trauma in it, and I found empathy. It is a book that I am so eager to share with my students when I teach next fall. It's a book that I'm, I'm delighted to share with my listeners today. I, I know that it took a lot to create this book, and I want to thank you for the time that it took to gather these stories and to shape them. Thank you for the time that it took to write it and to, to get it into this form. Thank you especially for taking time and talking about it with me and my listeners today. Thank you, and thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. 
We've been speaking today with Cole Arthur Riley. She's the creator of Black Liturgies, a space for black spiritual words of liberation, lament, rage, and rest. And it's a project of the Center for Dignity and Contemplation, where she serves as executive curator. Today, we've been talking about her recent book, This Here Flesh, Spirituality, Liberation, and the Stories That Make Us, available now from Convergent Books. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.